You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not, like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many have died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here. Really grateful that you've chosen to join us here tonight. We think that God is always at work at all times, in all situations and context. And so that certainly includes you being here with us tonight. So we pray that God, that God works um, in our midst. My first job at a college, I was a juvenile probation officer in Oklahoma City. It was everything you might think it would be. I learned so much about so many different things in that job. I learned about myself. I learned about poverty. I learned about the criminal justice system, had opportunities to engage in it. The lessons really go on and on and on. The job had multiple facets, and I, trust me, it was far from boring, far from boring. I was either in the field visiting clients, either at school or at, at home trying to track them down somewhere. Sometimes I'd be down in detention when I had clients who were, who were locked up. Other times I'd be in the office writing court reports or meeting with colleagues or counselors from the outside or all kinds of other people, attorneys, uh, like that just kind of runs the gamut. But my favorite part of the job, two days a week, Mondays and Wednesdays, I was in court. Two dockets each day, morning and right after lunch. I, within like a week of that rhythm, I learned I love court. I just got really excited about it. It's something like an adrenaline rush, kind of like a game time kind of thing. Like it, it's a high pressure situation. You got to have your your eyes dotted and your T's crossed. Like it's 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 on. It's game time. 
I learned specifically in the courtroom there in Oklahoma City that, that it really, really matters who your attorney is. Like, really matters. Pick that up very, very quickly. Most of our clients in our courtroom were represented, defended by the public defender's office or the, the PD. And so our PD, his name was Ben. Ben was a super jolly guy, which I always found compelling for the line of work that he did. He kind of reminded me a little bit of Kramer from Seinfeld. Like, he'd always enter a room and just kind of be disheveled in his hair, and like his arms were always like overflowing with, like, with law folders and just... Actually, the doors in our courtroom, I'm just remembering this, would kind of stick, so you'd kind of have to like, give a hip into it to open. So the door would fly open, and here's Ben, and he's, he's here. And it's, it was just, it was wonderful. I really liked Ben. Uh, he was funny. In his arguments before the court, he had good timing. He was just, he was just a good guy. And I, as I worked with him, I learned he really, really invested in and cared for his clients. Now, he had a lot of them as you might imagine. And he spent time, spent time with them outside of the courtroom, meeting with them. He argued for them, defended them passionately in the courtroom. Now, every once in a while, I would either go to another courtroom or a different PD would be in our courtroom or a private attorney, somebody. And through observation, you could just kind of see and determine you feel people out. Not everybody cared about their clients the way Ben did. It became obvious really, really quickly. So you ever find yourself, I suppose, in a, in a defendant situation, like it really matters who your attorney is. It really, really matters. And as important as that is, the type of representation or advocacy that Paul is drawing on here tonight that he's looking at, you're either, the fact that you're either represented in Adam or in Jesus is so much more important than a representation in a courtroom. I can't even explain to you how much more important it is. In fact, it's the most important thing about you, whether you're represented by Adam or Jesus. The stakes could not be higher. Could not be higher. So as we look into the second half of Romans 5 here tonight, I want you to see two points. First, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. And second... In Jesus, I'll live. In Jesus, I'll live. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you, God. You are merciful and kind, loving. God, that you provide for your people. You provide for us in all kinds of ways that we don't see and don't understand. God, open our eyes that we would see the ways you're working and the connections that you're making and, the, and the, the ways in which you are providing for us all the time. Father, be with us as we, as we look to your word. Open our eyes, God, that we would find wonders in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Adam all die. Remember that Romans is a letter with an internal structure and flow. So here you can see that the, this latter half of Romans 5 is connected to and flows directly from the first half. Makes sense. Paul wants to continue explaining some of the effects of justification. Now, if you were here with us last week, then you may remember 
the deep joy, the, the love of God expressed in the gospel that results from justification. Romans 1, 5 through 11 is one of those texts where if you want to understand what God is like, what his love is like, what the gospel of Jesus is like, you could read Romans 1, excuse me, 5, 1 to 11. All um, resulting from justification. Today, Paul takes aim at the need for justification. Your need for it, my need for it. Now, he does this by introducing a concept called federal headship. Federal headship that draws a comparison between Adam and Jesus. You can think of federal headship-like representation. Think about our system of government. You vote for somebody, that person goes to Washington and represents you there. Similarly, Paul is saying all people, all people are represented by either Adam or Jesus. Adam or Jesus. So in the text, in a sense, you are either in covenant with Adam, he is your federal head, your representative, or through faith, you're in covenant with Jesus. He is your federal head, your representative. Now, we have to understand federal headship in order to understand what Paul is arguing for here in this text. So with that in tow, let's dive in. Look with me back at verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So notice the progress in Paul's thought here. Look back at verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. As a result of his sin, death came into the world. And then finally, death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, it might seem strange to you that, that Paul says all sinned when he's referring to Adam's sin. That might seem strange to you. In fact, the modern individualist in you might rise up and object and say, hey, listen, I wasn't in the garden. I wasn't there. I, I, did, I didn't sin, so how can, how can I be held accountable for Adam's sin? What's that about? What does Paul mean, all sinned, when he's referring to Adam in the garden? Well, it actually seems that uh, the grammar of the text can help us understand this specific passage as it relates to the larger context. Now, so in the original language, this phrase, all sinned, at the end of verse 12, the, the verb sinned is in the aorist tense. Now, we don't usually talk about Greek verbs here in tenses. It's, you know, whatever. But, it's, but the aorist is something that we don't have in English, so in order to try to understand what it means and how it, is, how, how it fleshes itself out in thought, you sort of have to think about language in like this box in your mind and jump out of it. <laughs> so, what, so whatever those rules are for you as it relates to English, you've got to jump out of them. So the aorist in, 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 in Greek, Koine Greek at the time, oh, it refers to a single past action. That's how it works, grammatically. Single past action. So by using the aorist here, 
in the phrase, all have sinned at the end of verse 12, Paul is teaching us that everyone, everywhere, the whole race, fell into sin when Adam sinned, a single past event. New Testament scholar William Barclay, commenting on the aorist here, says, the precise meaning will be that sin and death entered into the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. How does that land on you as you think about that? See, it's, it's, it's a clear example in, in, in the Bible where we find the teaching of the Scripture colliding, perhaps head-on, in violent fashion with our modern culture and thinking. In particular, the individualism of our time that's so pervasive, it's like lenses that you and I wear over our eyes, maybe like glasses or contacts would be better, where after a while, you just kind of forget they're there. You kind of forget that they're there, and, and you don't consider that these lenses over your eyes actually color or influence how you see everything. But what Romans 5.12 is doing is actually forcing you to take off your glasses. It's forcing you to remove the lenses to see the world in a different way. In fact, I would suggest to you that you can't read the Bible like a modern individualist and understand what Paul and other authors of the New Testament and the Old Testament, certainly for that matter, are trying to communicate. We have to try to understand, okay, what was Paul's understanding? What was Paul's meaning? And from there, work to apply that truth to our lives. Romans 5.12 forces you to take off those lenses. Now, in his little commentary on Romans, pastor and author Tim Keller points out a couple common objections to the concept of federal headship from folks like us, Western folks. Keller says, we dislike the idea that, uh, of someone standing in for us. We say, it's not fair that I should be judged by what someone else did, or... I should have had the chance in the garden myself. <clears throat> now, this objection is, is grounded in a deep, deep lack of self-awareness. A deep, deep lack of self-awareness. Our individual culture typically blinds us to the realities of pride and self-righteousness. Like, you know. Like if you, if you, if you know, looking in the mirror, that if you were in the garden instead of Adam and Eve, you would have sinned too. Like you know that. And if you disagree with that, listen, I love you, but you're not being honest about that. You actually don't want to stand in Adam's place. That is not good news, not for anybody. But the actual good news of federal headship is that you have another advocate. You have another advocate, another representative, another federal head who does stand in your place for you. And we'll get to him in a minute. Another objection. Uh, Westerners may also dislike the lack of choice of federal head or representative. Like somehow you or I would do a better job of choosing our representative than God. 
Listen again, if you were thinking that way, it's pretty clear to me that we're actually falling into the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden, that you or could, could be better at being God than God. Which, I mean, you're not better at being God than God. The truth is, federal headship, like all things in the Christian life, you, to understand it, you rightly need, you, excuse me, you need faith. You need faith. You have to trust that God knew what he was doing. Did he know what he was doing? I would suggest to you that the whole of the Christian experience is one where God is inviting you to trust him. The whole thing. Inviting you to trust him. Federal headship is no different. The entire story of the Bible pushes you in the direction of faith. The, the, the whole thing. So um, that practically means dying to yourself. Like when you know that you want something or, and the scriptures would say, no, that's not a good thing for you. Trusting the Lord means backing away from that. It means listening. It means trusting that God knew what he's doing. Maybe we're talking about a, a, a doctrinal distinctive that's kind of confusing. Well, well, again, we're at the point of asking, do I trust that the Lord is good and that he knows what he's doing? Or maybe thinking about ethical positions in the Christian faith that are opposite, opposite to the culture. Do we trust that the Lord knew what he was doing? Or even practical choices of choosing to trust the Lord in the midst of very real and challenging situations like covid and it's, it's apparent unending nature. It forces us to ask deep and meaningful questions. Do you trust the Lord? In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, do you trust him? You trust him with the mystery of, of, of like wondering, like, Lord, when is this current season going to end? And like not really seeing the horizon, if you know what I'm saying? Like, do you trust him in the mystery of that? COVID's done a lot of things in our culture, in probably in your heart, certainly in mine. One of, one of those things is that it actually forces us to ruminate on that question, to sit on it. And to let it like simmer. Because it again, it doesn't seem to be ending. So even more opportunity for the Lord to invite you to trust Him. But what about what about like less serious things in the Christian life? Things like engaging with one another when you're tired. Like when I'm tired, I don't really want to go, I don't really want to church, I don't really want to go to uh, the small group, I just kind of want to do my thing. I, I don't want to go. I'm just exhausted by COVID and by my children and by my job and by all this stuff. I would prefer just to kind of sit here. Like, you know that impulse. I understand. But what do we do when that impulse rises up? Because again, I want to suggest to you that it is evidence of God inviting you to trust him. Like, do you trust him that when, I, when I'm exhausted, I get up and engage in the life in the church, that's a good thing for me? That actually through those environments, God is shaping me into the image of his son? 
more opportunities wherein God is, God is inviting us to trust him. The whole of the Christian life forces you to ask that question continually. Paul's point here in Romans 5.12 is that in Adam all die. In Adam all die. Everyone represented by Adam dies. There's no escape even before the law. If you look at verses 13 and 14, he says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, meaning that sin's effects, death, ruled even before the law was revealed, even before there were positive commands against it, death reigned. Now, it seems that Paul is teaching us here that God will treat sin in this time period from Adam to Moses different than how he treats it afterwards. And there's great mystery in that, but we'll trust that the Lord is going to work out the details. don't need to get bogged down by that. Everyone born into Adam, is his point, will, will die. He's your federal head, your representative. And in him, like everyone else, if you're here tonight, apart from Jesus, will die. But God, being rich in mercy, storehouses full of love and grace, has intervened. He's intervened. He's provided a way where there was no way. Again, let's, let's take a moment here. At the top of 2022, year of our Lord, and just think for a minute, the last two years, for many, deeply challenging. COVID, its effects, personal suffering, you know, that like, didn't stop at the, in the winter of 2020, and you know, carries on. Feeling isolated and alone, anxious, watching people that you love, maybe leave the church, maybe leave the faith. It's been a disorienting time. I feel that. I know you feel that. Filled with uncertainty. So it's, it's into these contexts, uncertainty, the mystery of tomorrow, where one of these overarching themes of the Bible speaks. What is that theme? Well, we see it here in Romans 5, we see it in other places, that God provides for his people. God provides for his people, often in ways that seem impossible. Think about, think about the Exodus as an example. People of God leave Egypt, they go out into the desert, they get to the borders of the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind, they're stuck, they're trapped. They are, see in front of them, likely the most, like, a powerful army in the world at the time coming to get them. And God intervened. And God intervened. Opened the water, they walked across, on, onward and upward, kind of. <laughs> or think about what Paul says in Ephesians, wherein God actually, in conversion, raises you from the dead. Like you weren't sick and he made you well. You were dead and he made you alive. God intervened. What happens? Like, what do dead people do apart from this intervention of God? They stay dead. But, but God, through Christ, makes you alive. Or you think about in Colossians where Paul says, hey, listen, God has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred you. Raised you from the dead. Rescued you from Pharaoh. 
God is often, often providing for his people in ways that seem to be impossible. So as you think about this year, I would encourage you to think about, think seriously about how God is providing for you. How is he providing for you? Because he is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of COVID and pain and confusion. And so listen, as a means of practicing faith, thought about that before? Like that there are actual ways to practice faith? As a way of practicing your faith, ask him to show you, Lord, how are you providing for me that I don't see? Open my eyes, Lord, that I would see these ways that you're providing. Unlock my ears that I would hear from you. Practice faith. So in the text in Romans 5, this theme, God providing for his people, comes out. And that leads us to the second point I want you to see this evening. That in Jesus, all live. In Jesus, all live. Jump down with me to verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Remember our context of federal headship, representation. You are either in Adam and receive the results of his sin, death, or through faith you are in Jesus and receive the results of his obedience, life. This is the contrast that Paul wants us to see here in the text, that in Adam I'll die, but in Jesus I'll live. Look with me again at verse 18. He says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's clear at this point, Adam's sin leads to condemnation. But through Jesus' life, what theologians call his, his, his active obedience, that he fulfilled the law for you, lived a perfect life according to the standard that the law provides, and his passive obedience, what he did on the cross for you, You're justified. Those who believe in him are justified or rescued or transferred into him, into the kingdom. For a long time, um, many scholars have believed that this section of Romans relating to justification, Paul casts it in legal terminology, in legal language. And so we could, we could very, very easily think about here in verse 18, um, the idea in th- that through Christ and his one act of righteousness leads to acquittal for you. Acquittal. So for, it, for, for you to be justified or acquitted in, in God's courtroom, you certainly, certainly, certainly have to have the right representative or advocate. It can't be Adam. It can't be you. It can't be anybody else. Why? Well, he says here, only one act of righteousness, verse 18. 
Only one man's obedience, verse 19, can acquit you. So when Jesus is your advocate, your representative, what he does is actually give you his righteousness. So when you're justified or acquitted or declared right, saved, it's on the basis of Jesus' obedience for you, applied to you. Applied to you. So this, the, the imputed or given righteousness of Jesus <clears throat> for, for sinners for, for his people, is, is so close to the heart of the gospel. It's so close to the heart of, of the gospel. But now listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, and you've heard all of that before, um, you, should, you should certainly think about thinking in your mind, going back and praising the Lord for the time when he declared you right, when he justified you. When you were acquitted. But I have this sneaking suspicion, sneaking suspicion that many, many think about justification specifically, and, and, and then your relationship with the Lord more broadly in that same frame, i.e., in the past tense. It's something that happened a long time ago. Something that happened in my past, and I can think back on that and thank God for it. But these truths of justification and even federal headship have a hard time in our thinking making it into the present tense. Maybe you're asking the question, yeah, okay, cool, but what about right now? What about right now? Well, what about right now? We should think about that. You see, Jesus' representation for you, his advocacy for you in the Bible is not simply or only past tense. It's good news for more than just a moment in time. In other words, in Jesus, when you're in Jesus, he continues to represent you. He continues to advocate for you. Like now, right now, today, tomorrow, moving forward. In fact, the Apostle John in 1 John 2 says it this way. <clears throat> if anyone does sin, which we could translate when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So not only, not only does God rescue you from the domain of darkness, transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, then Jesus himself advocates for you. And not just then, now. Now, did you notice, if you have your Bible, you can look at 1 John 2, 1. Did you notice when John said Jesus advocates for you? When? 1 John 1, 2, excuse me, 2, 1. Confused there, 2, 1. When you've stopped sitting, no. When you're perfect, no. When you've got all of the details worked out, no. When you sin, Jesus advocates for you before the Father. When you sin. So listen, we can't miss it here. Jesus advocates for you. He's with you. He's standing beside you, positively representing, for you, representing you before God when you sin. 
So it's not this issue of like I sin and then I go beat myself up for a couple of days and feel bad about myself and let shame overtake me. And then when I feel better about myself, I'm going to go to God. No, it's none of that. It's not that at all. It's when I sin, Jesus raises his hand and say, that one is mine. I'm for him. I'm for you. But what about my sin? I see it. I'm for you. But I did it again. I know my eyes are wide open and I see you and I love you the same. That's the kind of advocate he is. It's not like it's conditional at all. It's in fact the opposite of that. That's what John said. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, his heart in 1 John 2 for you, that he's advocating for you when you sin, while you sin, is amazing. It's amazing. I know because we've talked about it over and over and over again that the gospel it loses its steam as we think about it in the midst of our sin because I think I've got to justify myself. I think I've got to get all of my stuff together before he'll love me. No. 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 What did he say? If anyone does sin, when you sin, you haven't advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. His heart in that is deeply connected to the theology in Romans 5 of federal headship. Jesus as your federal head, your representative, your advocate means, it means not only that you are in him, but that his heart is for you. What it means. It means his eyes are wide open. It means he's not frustrated with you. It means he's not annoyed at you. It means he's not standing like looking at you like, okay, when is this going to get over with? No, it's none of that. He's for you. He is gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His advocacy for you takes into account your weakness. He sees it. He knows your sin. And listen, he is undetoured. To get a snapshot of this, this compassion that Jesus has for you, for the sinner, for the struggler. Look with me over, if you've got your Bible, in Mark chapter 1. I love Mark. I mean, I love all the Gospels, but Mark is, is um, I don't know, it's uniquely paced, meaning that it's really fast. There's no Christmas story. There's no genealogy. It just kind of like jumps in and goes. It's the ground. There's a lot happening, and a lot happening really quickly in Mark. Down in verse 40, um, the text says this. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Okay, so notice, notice the way Jesus initially responds to the man. Initially responds to the man. 
You think about it, uh, he's a leper, super contagious, social outcast, pariah, flesh falling off his bones, likely. He comes up to Jesus, which would have been, which would have been a breaking of etiquette, asks him to heal him, and what does Jesus do? What does he do? How does he respond? Does he flinch? Does he kind of like take a step backwards? Don't want to catch that. Did he say, go wash up? No. What does the text say? It says he was moved with pity. He had compassion on him. It's amazing. He was moved with pity and had compassion on this man in the midst of his sickness and struggle. He had compassion on him while he had leprosy. It wasn't like, okay, let me just heal you and then I can have compassion for you. No. While he has leprosy, Jesus moves towards him, reaches out and heals him. Now, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, um, that nobody here has leprosy. Not actual leprosy. But I'm more than pretty sure. In fact, I'm, I'm positive. Everyone here has a type of spiritual leprosy called sin. And what it does to our insides is far, far worse than what leprosy does to the flesh of a person. And so notice the heart of Jesus in Mark 1 for the man. Moved with compassion, heals him of his leprosy. Jesus' heart for you is the same. Moved with compassion to heal you in the midst of your sickness, sin, and struggle. This is one of the downstream effects of being in Jesus, of having him as your federal head, your representative, your advocate. It's not just then. In the past somewhere where I can, I can think about when I, became, when I came into the kingdom or when I was saved and that's nice. No, it's now. It has intense power now as you live, as you sin, as you walk, with the Lord, and as you struggle, Jesus' heart for you, his compassion for you, that is deeply, deeply connected to him as your federal head, as your representative, as your advocate, is for now. You need that. You need that. Now, this comparison between Adam and Jesus in, in um, Romans 5 is remarkable. And Paul wants you to see, I hope it's clear, that Jesus is better. It's better than Adam. His love is more powerful than the effects of Adam's sin. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, said it this way. That if Adam's fall had the effect of producing the ruin of many, the grace of God is much more efficacious in benefiting the many, since admittedly, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. Friends, so you, you have to ask, Ask yourself, as you leave tonight, as you go about your business, who is my federal head? Who is my representative? Who is my advocate? Because all of us born into Adam who stay, into Adam, stay in Adam die. But the mercy, by, by, by the mercy of God, the, the, the grace of God, his heart for you to provide in a way that you didn't even know you needed, those who by faith believe in the true and better Adam 
the true and better representative, the true and better federal head, the one who has compassion on the sinner and the struggler. Those who are in Jesus live. And not just in some some distant eschatological future. Like Jesus didn't just save you so you could go to heaven. That's not necessarily what the Bible teaches us. He saved you so that you might live now. What do you think it means in John 10.10 when Jesus says, I came that you would have life and life abundantly? It means, one of the things, is that Jesus, as your federal head, as your advocate, stands with you with compassion in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your struggle. And he's with us. He's with you.